from now on because i don't like it i can only do i think john's in shock right now look at him he doesn't like it either or he doesn't know what to make of it that's from that's that's exactly the latter probably the the former i I understand it it. the latter is what's more puzzling the latter is also what you use to get to higher places (laughs) you're in a mood aren't you (laughs) i'm infectious uh wait did i say that out loud john yes yes i don't know where that came from Okay. Um, and infect, infectious, too. What? You're trying to create a word where there is none. I, yeah. I can sense that. That's my job. No, yeah, that, that's <laughs> his job, not yours. I can help. Anyway, welcome to this week's episode of the Crash Course Podcast. Um, yeah. No big announcements this week uh, that I can think of other than we're actually forming a plan to write more, so... Hopefully there will be more articles on the website. Yeah, we keep soon. promising this, and now we actually have ideas, and we're just going to see if we could actually do them. That's your plan, right? To put us on the spot there? So now we're... It hasn't worked before. We're up we, there for posterity. Yeah, we're on the spot It hasn't every, worked on before. Week. I put us all on the spot for weeks, and wow. it didn't do diddly. I appreciate you trying the same thing over and over again. It's, it's bound to work. Really. Right, of really, course. Really, that's, that's time-tested. I'm still working on that Romeo and Juliet thing I said. What Romeo and Juliet? Like thing did months you say? ago. Oh, that's right. You were comparing a certain album, uh, a certain albums. Hello theme. goodbye. No, it wasn't a hello goodbye. No. I very well could. Oh no, it could have been. Might have been. Could have been anything. I don't know. They all blend together, don't they? But I was dissecting Romeo and Juliet and the problems with it. I had I had a couple of free hours today. <laughs> See, it's a long way to go to compare an album's arc to a Shakespeare play. Because it's they're two different things, and we actually had this discussion back in episode fifty when we're comparing music to other art forms. But music does not always match its it, its uh its arc with that of a play it or can, that of a though. film. There's nothing saying it that can, it can can, but it's it's much tougher, and normally it's not done intentionally. So if you're trying to find it and it's not really there, it's not almost not worth it. But I can usually find it. I'm yeah, good at that. You you can. I wouldn't say good. I'd say you have a 50-50 I can pull back the veil and glimpse the unknowable. No. He's really just self-aggrandizing, isn't he? A little bit. I like that word, self-aggrandizing. And considering it is his album this week, we might as well let him kick this off. This week, we reviewed the four-track symphony... I don't even know how to describe it. Four-movement symphony, first of all. Because it's a symphony at all. (laughs) It is a symphony? Well, it's titled as a symphony, so yes. Yes, it's it is a, a symphony. symphonic, choretic. I don't even remember half the words we were using. Well, I don't. What it <laughs> is, Orca by Serge Tankian, his fourth studio release. It's actually the full title's Orca Symphony Number no. One, and in theory, alluding to the fact that he will be doing more of them. Yeah, I mean, I could see that coming from him, especially he is an industrious guy. I'll give him that. Uh, and apparently, he has a jazz album out too. So he's not only industrious; he's 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 versatile. So he can do just about anything he sets his mind to, it seems. And uh, I will say, this is this is there's no ifs ands about it. 
this is a symphony. Because you, you were about to ask me, John, well, is it really a symphony? But it is a symphony. It has quirks of what you'd find in contemporary classical, of course. Uh, and it also has quirks of what you'd find in a cinematic score. So in this time, I do think he's going for something fairly cinematic. Of course, you have to treat it in itself and not as a cinematic score, because at present, there's no movie to go along with this. So... Though we are strictly from the auditor. We are fairly certain that Disney would be the ones to write this movie. You know, I didn't think that initially, but there are definitely moments where it seems so quirky that it's downright playful. But then again, on the, at the same note, it can be really tragic. Really, really tragic. Like, beyond that of what I would expect from Disney, uh, to be honest. Including, including, there, not saying that Disney can't be tragic, but there there was a level of seriousness here. Come on, Dad. Come on. We gotta get home. Come on. Simba, Mufasa, Lion King. Everybody still cries. And, I mean, even think Pixar. Mm. Up. The first half hour of Up was so horribly depressing and adult. Bambi. Let's go old school. Bambi. Yeah, well, I guess I'll, we'll we'll take apart those uh, those sections as we come to them, and then we'll determine it, determine it from there. But from our so, first part, victorious Orcanus. So the, this the, is the first movement. The album is separated into four movements, which are also labeled four separate acts um, that each have a title. Um, this is very unique from anything else we've done before it because we've never really done. A, a scale symphony like this. Yeah, it's funny that I was prefacing this earlier by saying that uh, music doesn't always match that of a Shakespeare play, but yet he does label them acts, which is is abnormal for a symphony. For usually the movements just speak for themselves; they're not always labeled acts. And uh, each of each one of these has titles. Well, clearly he wrote this, even if it's not like if we don't see it, he wrote this to be somewhat theatrical. I think. Between the acts, how it's broken up, the titles, it feels very theater. I I, I would probably go theater, um, cinematic instead. Okay. B- because you know theater, you you could go either way with theater. There's I wouldn't say it's a musical. That's well, no, sure. but that's not what I'm saying. I'm yeah. saying the it's well, theatrical. Theater. If I were to think of anything, it would be that short that Disney did with the airplane, whose name I cannot remember. The airplane. The guy throwing that the airplanes. Short, oh, the paper airplane. airplane. Yes. Oh, um, which is if if okay, everybody watching or listening or whatever. It was the it screen. was the the film short before Wreck It Ralph, the Paper Man. Yes, watch that. Yeah. Which was very good. Actually, one of my favorite things Disney's done in That's the right. last See, if you, decade. If you said is that. Pixar, Pixar, then I probably would have thought because that was it, Pixar. No, no? Wreck It Ralph. Was, that was all Disney. Oh, Wreck It okay. Ralph and Paper Man were Disney. 100% That's news Disney. to me. You can see why I thought it was Pixar. Well, because of the computer graphics, but it and also is Disney not. has bought out Pixar, haven't they? At this point, they are still separate. Entities. But they are still separate entities, kind right. of like separate, Marvel and Star Wars. A separate division, but yeah. Disney might be a blurb somewhere in the credits. Mm, Wreck It Ralph was was strictly Disney. It wasn't. It was it was the first non musical Disney movie in a long time, but it was strictly Disney. There was no Pixar influence. Hmm, interesting. Well, just before we get into the uh, the first movement here, I, I do want to mention something about the name because the, the title of the entire symphony is called Orca, and Orca, as John figured out, is type of type of fish or whale. Not fish or whale. It is a porpoise. <laughs> yeah, part it's of the actually a specific mammal. about it. It's actually Orcanus orca, the killer whale, the big black and white animal that everybody thinks is actually a whale, but is uh, really the biggest dolphin on the face of the earth. So it's not far-fetched to go into it thinking it's and a whale. And just 
a little bit of you know natural geographic knowledge on y'all. Uh, they are one of both the most dangerous sea creatures, not the humans, surprisingly. There's very few human attacks, but they are really vicious, hungry, predatory creatures, yet also very loving, caring. They have a language, not, you know, immensely definable, but they do communicate. They do have uh, very personal and recognizable identities. And the reason for this choice was, as Serge put it himself, the orcas, to some extent, rec- uh, recommend, not recommend, represent, represent the dichom- dichotomy of man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely see that if you, when you compare, of course, you know, the capacity of love against the capacity for hate and warfare. Of course, that's that's sort of a, ba- you know, human <clears throat> humanity one hundred and one kind of thing. Yes, we we are capable of both. And uh, I, I, I do want to talk as we go through this as to how well this uh, symphony really delivers that. Um, so let's talk about the intro first. So I mean, the intro. Well, yeah, you started. Uh, I was going to say all I was going to say was that the intro, very, very from the very beginning, is strikingly beautiful. It's piano piece, um, kind of solo at at first, um, and well, it only stays on its own very for a very short amount of time. Well, for well, at least as an intro, I I thought of this almost as two intros. It depends on how you want to view uh, you want to view the organizational structure of this symphony here because. Uh, most symphonies often start out their first movement here usually starts out with what's called a sonata form which is typically it's along the lines of a you get a primary theme you can have an intro before that or not it's really kind of up for it's up to you really as a composer and then you can have a transition and then a secondary theme and then usually closing material which borrows from from both themes and sort of wraps it up in a big way and you could think about this in a couple of ways here. I, I, I tended to think of the intro as being in two sections. You have an intro, that light piano theme, as you were talking about. That, that playful. That, that's almost playful the intro theme. to the whole entire symphony, the way I see it. Yeah. It is playful, but it sort of rumbles, you know, it's, it's kind of rumbling on these basic chords it's, here. It's somber at points. It does have that, that higher key work, but it does, each uh, section of, of the progression does have a... a, a darker downturn on the note play a little bit i mean i thought the piano part was pretty pretty basic a little bit cut and dry perhaps for something of a symphonic scale it's uh one four three flat two one it's kind of textbook in terms of prefacing an epic theme with dark undertones so i see what you're saying um it delivers that it mostly delivers that uh although it's mostly in c minor there is a melody there just hovering overhead that uh, I believe was the oboe, and it places an emphasis on the Phrygian mode, which gives it that sort of general Middle Eastern feel, which you will feel in certain ele- in certain places throughout this album. That Although also... Phrygian really corresponds to Turkey, which isn't far from Lebanon, and Beirut, Lebanon, I believe, is where Serge Tankin was born. He's Not also he's also an Armenian American, and See, that's interesting. actually still lives in that area. He was born in Beirut, but if he's Armenian, that's kind of interesting. But yeah. Over there. But talking about your oboe, it was also coupled with those woodwinds, those uh, uh, not quite punctuating, backdrop-oriented woodwinds, and uh, eventually merges with. Well, that, well I mean, the oboe is work. a woodwind. Woodwind. So you you have that your oboe, uh, you you there a is a lot of brass, wo- woodwind, a little bit of brass uh, thrown in there as well. Yes, that's true. But I do think the beginning of this is is very heavy on the woodwinds, at least as far as the intro is concerned. You're talking about. 
uh, driven by Oboe quite a bit. Also, Bassoon. It, there's a lot of call and response nature going back and forth between Oboe and Bassoon. Um, and, uh, yeah, the thing is, the, this whole intro section, especially right after the, the piano uh, part really finishes off, it's very thin. It's almost like that of a chamber ensemble. Not not what you'd expect from a symphony, not that they can't get soft, you know, at times, but it, it starts so softly, you'd almost expect this to be some kind of symphonietta. And that's what uh, leads directly into the violins. And when those first violins, those first strings start hitting, it really does start to energize the piece. I felt it actually starting to pick up. But that it did, doesn't well, it did start picking, and I it, felt that it was still picking up even within the intro itself. I didn't even think we were really at the primary theme yet. But that that pickup is you're talking about. You just look at the, a few things here. You've got the oboe, you've got the bassoon, you've got these little flute punctuations. So yes, it's very light in the beginning, um, and then yes, the violin comes in. I maybe even been a viola in there. I did like some moments in here. There was like a little rising glissando in there, which did kind of provide a little bit of a uniqueness. Uh, that's sort of like a slide for a violin. Just a little rise there. Gave a little, some gave some personality, I think, to this intro. Gave it a little but, bit of pep. Right. But then uh, the point which you're talking about, the point where it picks up is right after that. It's all within the intro, and it just seems to get very ominous, very fast. Faster than you'd expect, considering you've had almost two stages of... of uh, beginning itself by now and that's because it kept in those high flute oriented woodwinds and brought in uh a deep deep drum rumbly chords exactly with slowing down the violin which really de-energized it which brought the whole tempo down uh while remaining within that same time frame and that did did really just scream darkness i almost called it Elfmanian, if we can use that term now. Danny Elfman. Elfmanian, Elfmanic, whatever. <laughs> it was it was reminiscent of his stuff, for sure. There were tones of that in it. However, with the changes like this, it, it almost made the first listen seem like it was a bunch of small pieces as opposed to one overarching theme. And I think on the second listen, we kind of found the threads that pull it together. Right. But they're not so obvious on a first listen. It's very which easy is, to lose that main theme. Which is why that introduction, which... At, at, at first glance, did seem like uh, an introduction and a separate piece, but that introduction really did have a very much a closing kind of a feel towards its end before we get into that first theme. Oh, yeah, it, it swells, and then it recedes almost immediately. And it feels like a finale for that piece, and it wasn't actually a piece. It really did not propel itself the same way this, this, this first actual uh, theme does. Well, that's the thing. I almost That's only why I felt it was too big too fast for me, because... I, I could understand it being sort of like that overture material, like, okay, this is a sign as to what you may get later in the symphony, but it was a little bit too big, especially when you consider, just like uh, you pointed out, John, bringing in the, the percussion. When you bring in percussion for a symphony, that's a very, very bold move, because um, it's so it's so obvious in the face of, in the face of w what you expect to be going on, which is, of course, orchestral material. You expect to be hearing violins, woodwinds, other sections. So then when you bring in the percussion, which is usually the 
big kettle drum. Yeah, you know, course. it's and never we've, anything. We've talked about bum, this before. Bum, bum, never bum, anything bum. you can't ignore. Yeah, we've talked about this before. When you bring in a drum like that, he's usually in the room over just because he tends to overpower the rest of an orchestra. Yeah, well, it depends on the, on the, on how it was recorded. And that should also be noted that this was recorded in a studio version as well as a live version. Um, and this we piece, listen to the studio. but this is for an eight minute, nine minute opening track. This was the solid three minutes. It yeah, really was. this was about three minutes of, of intro, as I would consider it. And then uh, it does go into a the, the first theme, and I do enjoy this first theme. Yeah. Because it was, you, you've got an upright bass being plucked, upright bass or cello. It's coupled with um, that really distinct uh, piano that from, from Harry Curie. That, that punctuated his, beat work that he uses album. in Harry Carey, yeah. his previous work, but it's now being used as a piano piece, and it's really, it, I do enjoy this. I like what he does with that uh, to bring something a, a little bit different than what I was expecting. Well, see, I have to it. wonder if you're talking about the same section, because the primary theme here, I, I, I thought it was quite beautiful. This was a very slow section. You could tell me if I'm on the if I'm, we're on the same page here. These really long, drawn-out notes across uh, the full like three four measures it's almost like a waltz of the damned sort of a dirge unto itself but we're still in in the primary theme here so it's not it's not quite too dark i i i'd call it just flat out beautiful no that's that precedes what i'm talking about that is that closing transition into theme one yeah then we're not we're not at the part you're talking about then yet this is all this is all just the primary theme here this is um it's this is much more toned down from from the intro, from the big intro close that we got, it, but this even this even this I it should be noted uh, that this picks up again very quick rapidly just as the intro did, so the same theme sort of repeats itself, but this time all, the whole the instrumental components are just placed on steroids. The percussion again it's all over the place. The brass comes in, and I think this is what you thought I was talking about before. It's much it more mimics, energized. Yeah, much more this of an, is, this is an like, action sequence. This becomes the core theme that I like yeah. in, in this. This becomes the core of the theme I really enjoy. And it gets comped ex- exceedingly well. That bass really gets comped by the piano and by the violins. And I love that deeper current that it creates. And then it gets reimagined with the horns, and then it gets reimagined with the piano. Exactly. And I love that reintroduction kind of a feeling that he's going for here. So that's why we were a little bit off the say off uh, off the mark here, because this th- when you when you count the intro with this primary theme, it brings you well past the middle the, the halfway point of this movement. It brings you up yeah. to five minutes plus, and then we get sort of a weird transitionary section of. Uh, that leads us into the secondary theme, and that's what you were talking about, John. You could describe again. Ed. That the secondary theme uh, is really somber. That's truly what it becomes. It I would is, agree. It's more uh, a combination of just the the voice of the piano and the violin. Just just really feels dejected, and yet that really becomes almost an adventure tale at the end of it, which is the oddest part. Well, my biggest problem with this section of the song, and it's where I kind of, they kind of lost me, is towards the end, around the seven and a half minute mark, this slow, beautiful piece just jumps disjointedly into this sense of urgency, this lead-up that's just completely unnecessary and out of left field. It just, it makes it sound like it's almost a completely separate song. 
Well, and an urgency that I felt wasn't earned by the slow part. It was just, it seems like two separate pieces. This is something that didn't quite get me yet. I mean, I understand what you're talking about, and I do think that is a problem later in the symphony itself. But in this first movement here, it's true that you get a lot of different things, but I mean, I, I think in the end, you can still boil them down to this primary and secondary theme. It's like, again, as John said, it's reimagining. It's reimagining it using different instruments. And sometimes those, those transitions are so abrupt and so, so sort of complex. You know, the figuration is completely off the... For instance, uh, that, that pizzicato, the upright bass pizzicato, is, um, that's actually... A, the first time you hear it, it's a little bit sudden. It seems like it's something totally new, but then it comes back later throughout the symphony. So even that, if you look into it, it's it's um it's a motif. It... But this 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 closing section, uh, which is a reimagining of the 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 first theme with a little bit of the introduction's higher energy thrown into it, really shows how the first and second theme are just just a little bit too divorced because it that transition is very abrupt and I don't really feel like a flow between the two I don't really feel like a transition so much as a stop and start and for that that really just pulls me out of what was being made in this opening right and it's on that it's on those grounds where I agree a little bit more see I, that's the thing I there are abrupt transitions here it's just yeah it was almost, it was that stop-start nature, which I don't think is the same as abrupt to me in a strange, abstract way, that made this, um, that made this negative in that aspect. But it becomes, Very strange. it's soft, boom, not any preceding... It's, 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 it's two pieces that were put together. There was no transitionary material in that moment. It's just very much soft, and then instant urgency. Well, that's the thing, and this this is the uh, this is where I I bring in the other way to analyze this 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 first section. Yeah, excuse me, the first movement here. Because when I started thinking about this, I actually thought that the second part of the intro was perhaps the primary theme. In which case, it would be ex extremely brief. It would just be the end of uh, it would just be from where the chamber ensemble uh, heads into the the larger, more brassy-like section. Which is like And then I would seconds. consider that would to be a transition, but that would be a much more appropriate transition, at least, you'd admit, into uh, what we're now calling the primary theme, which would, at the time, be the secondary theme. That's one way to analyze it, but then you have to look at the closing material of this, of this, um, of this movement to be pretty, pretty bizarre and yeah. abstract and very jumping around. But, but still you, harkens back to the, the primary. That's the thing. You can always take liberties with closing material. You can always borrow from whatever the hell you want, almost. But by showcasing it within the framework of what the primary theme had created, it shows the disconnection between the primary and the secondary. Well, it shows that divorce well, yeah, but ideas also, between the two. I will say though that after a second or third, uh, a third listen, it he's. I think I think Serge Tankin is is. is was doing a fairly good thing here as far as exposition is concerned. I think uh I think it actually gets the job done fairly. At well, least in terms of a symphony. You can't well, be too critical in this well, regard. He's you, writing a symphony. What do you define define by getting the job done? Like what does that mean? I think I think it does set up a story. No, I was a little ambiguous about it in the like perhaps in the intro. Like that very first swell, yes, I admit that was too big, too fast. But by the time you get yeah, three quarters of the way through the first movement, um I'm I'm kind of okay with it. Well, I mean, there's no denying that there's character and some kind of 
piece here that's being grown and cultivated, but I think it's just the, the way this is put together, it's almost incoherent and unclear as exactly what's being gone, what the goal is, what he's going for in this first piece. I got it's it. It's clearer in the later pieces. No, I got it. I've, I've figured out the finale. The finale? We're not... The, a- no, the finale of Act One. Okay. It, it It's right in the name, Victorious Orcus. I, I guess you're, that's what that's a something we'll be returning to later. Actually, no. This that now I, that now that halting, you know, very abrupt nature makes sense. The orca got his food. That was his strike. So you're saying Act One ends with him getting what he was go- going for? Yeah, yeah. The secondary theme was actually his stalking, hence the somber nature. I mean. I want to be very, very careful about following it's this vague, along it's with... It's vague, but I, I really do see it now. I put two and two together and got that. Well, I'm so glad you could, got that, you could get that after the fact, because it's... it's yeah, I just want to be careful about following this along so closely with the orca. You have to take it from a musical perspective. And from a musical perspective, it, it, it's hit or miss, I think, in this first movement. And I was being a little bit inaccurate before, because when you consider a sonata, a sonata, at least as it would be played uh, separately in like a, um, in, you know, like a piano sonata or something like that, really has like these three larger second sections called like an, an exposition, uh, then the developmental section, and then the recapitulation, which sort of brings back elements from the former. And the development and recapitulation, I do see a little bit more inherent here in the end of this. But it's the exposition itself that that wholly consists of that primary transition, secondary closing theme. It's, uh, I think it succeeds the more and more I think about it. Uh, I just think that from a musical standpoint, from a transitionary standpoint, it could have been a little bit more graceful. Well, that's what my biggest gripe. That's essentially what I was saying. Yeah. Was that the transitions were lacking in the first act. The second act and the third act, they're better. And then, I don't even want to mention the fourth act yet. But, I mean, the thing also about this is, while while I know the focus is to try and focus on the music and not get so caught up in the story, the reality is, not only is it called the Orca Symphony, but every track has something to do with 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 the sea and with the Orca and with the, this creature. I mean, there are references to it in every track, how it's, how it's written. So that can't be ignored completely. All right. Well, there's 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 just a couple more things I want to mention about the the first movement before we move on, and um, there's some positives because here's the thing. I think uh, Serge Tank is actually doing really really well uh, on the micro scale. I think that in the moment he he he's got an excellent command over voicing. Um, I don't know if he had any help or whether he was solely in charge of all the orchestration, but it is quite intricate at certain moments, especially during uh, the middle point of the first movement. Sort of, I guess, what you consider. The development, right after we finish that uh, that secondary theme and the closing of it, um, after the, the final swell there, we we get something that's almost completely new. It, it's after another that after that brass transition, you get these little short rises in the lower register. The strings accompanying the piano with this little flutter, and then every instrument starts joining in the flutter, and they're trading off. And I thought that was totally engaging at that particular moment. And then, you know, it's sort of a back and forth for a sort of a tug and rope for a while before we really get, I think, the uh, the recapitulation, the, the closing of, of this entire sonata form where um, where the melody starts 
hovering. The melody that you get in the very, very beginning starts hovering over this more rumbly backdrop. That's almost tech textbook in itself, but you can never go wrong because it feels very conclusive. We're also getting something a little bit unusual from the layman's idea of orchestral work, and that is very, very little competition and very, very few instruments. We're, we're not hearing full orchestras. Yes, that's that thinned-down nature I was talking about, the, the Sinfonietta style, where you it's almost more like a chamber ensemble in certain moments. Granted, of, when it swells, it's a full orchestra, and there's no question about that. But I do enjoy that, that really no more than three, possibly four instruments, not even sections, but at times instruments playing. And yeah. it's very individualistic, and I like that. I really get to hear a lot more uh, of the texture of the individual pieces. I'm really appreciative of that. I really enjoy that part of it. Well, yeah, like for instance, well, that that's um that's something I also haven't said. The uh, uh, there's almost a concerto style uh, at at play here. The idea that a soloist will take center stage and be featured throughout the piece. But the funny thing is, you can't say that it's oh well, it's a piano concerto or a, or an oboe concerto. Like yes, there are moments when they take center stage, but it's almost a trade off from one instrument to the other. Everyone will kind of get their turn. You could almost conceive them to be the characters in this particular plot. In the beginning, it's the oboe, and then uh, by the time you get the secondary theme, it, it's it's the bassoon. So there's sort of a call and response nature there. Uh, very jazzy in idea actually that is kind of a jazzy idea the more you think about it uh, I don't think it's certainly certainly in form certainly in form there's some influence there so um, yeah then it kind of just ends in a big way gets very elfmanian at the end with the dark swells I mean it's very apparent that regardless of how we feel about the overall piece it's I mean it's it's calculated to a point and he knows how to pair the instruments too I mean the, the swell especially with the swells that it does blend together very nicely and give you that kind of oomph that you want to get from those swells comping is is definitely good comping is definitely very good uh, well comping is an, is, a, is, a, is a jazzy term which which I actually wouldn't say applies here i mean there is that's kind of written into uh the symphony style itself that there's always going to be something well, complementing so then, yeah then what you, should i phrase it as well it's a figuration in many in many cases because it's not often it's not often that uh that active manner of complementing it's usually something consistent there's something that you can really grab hold of and say that that's a that's a definable pattern like for instance the pattern going in the upright bases when they're when they're doing that pizzicato that's something very definable that's sort of a what i'd call a figuration so um let's uh see what we get from act two so act two is Ocean oceanic subterfuge this is another one that has a very strong intro to to start um I put it one way, Steve put it the other, and I think we're both pretty much on the same wavelength. I called it vibrating, and I believe Steve said fluttering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, two different ways of describing almost the same thing. But it, it was, well, it was, it was enough. happy, too. It, it definitely had a much more positive vibe to it. and um, Initially, anyway, for sure. And it was also kind of unique in terms of the sound. Because let, let's take a step back here and like look at everything that we've had now in Movement 1. As beautiful as it can be at times... We're really not looking at anything groundbreaking here. No. Not in Act One. It's almost a textbook uh, yeah. first movement in that regard. It's something that you'd find out of like, um, at least in style, 
out of like classical tradition, but yet it it just incorporates cinematic themes. There's a lot of I mentioned uh, 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 Danny Elfman, but I should also mention Hans Zimmer because I think even though it gets kind of it has Danny Elfman's darkness to it. I feel like general action vibe really encompasses more of a Hans Zimmer style. Well, and Hans Zimmer does his fair share of darkness as well. It does, but it's more in that, you know, well, for instance, just to look at the disparity, Han, uh, Danny Elfman did the soundtracks to the old set of Batman films while Hans Zimmer is doing the, the new movie ones. to the new ones. So, yeah, there's a transition there. But there, there was more macabre, I feel, in the earlier Batman films, and there was more action in the modern ones. So that should define the, the difference between the two composers right there. Yes, I guess. I mean, but there are there are still, I feel like, that lo- those levels of disparity and darkness in some of the, the pieces by Zimmer. But right. I'm just mentioning that because I think it's going to be something we're returning to here. But I enjoy Before we best, go to that... I enjoy best when he's not going down the route of both composers and following his own unique style, which I, like I find in the beginning of this movie. The, the, the woodwinds and the higher register violin work, uh, very playful, very very much a back-and-forth kind of give-and-take, uh, uh, as I like to put it, fighting but not really competing with one another. Yeah, and the, the violins also went down more in the lower register of the violins, which is a nice a nice mid-range to be there. Uh, it, it, it's indi- indicative of rising action, I feel, uh, especially at this point in the symphony. And then goes, not directly, but still one of those uh, more unusual transitions, I felt, into that piano work, which really did did seem to try to go sad very quickly, very abruptly. See, I disagree. I don't think that the sadness was that abrupt. I thought that the transition uh, from the intro of this, though not groundbreaking, was more consistent and made sense, especially when it hit that two two minute to two minute twenty second mark, where it became this gorgeous heart wrenching piece. Well, hang on, I don't want to jump ahead here because yes, I I I think that section, when as you're talking about it, one might as well call that a secondary theme to this as well. Uh, I thought that was absolutely beautiful. But that was preceded by something that I thought was kind of tacky. Because after we get, um, and it was followed by the same uh, tacky section, because after we get that flutter and all that stuff that I felt was very unique, it's just in the immediate intro, we get introduced to, uh, to, well, we get sort of a prelude to an action sequence, and then finally we get sort of the action sequence, which is driven by brass and by these sort of halting, steady beats that just, define almost the most blandest of action sequences yeah. that I can possibly conceive of. And uh, sad, I'm sad to say the first thing that came to my mind was Neil Davidge's uh, Halo soundtrack. Uh, it was very, very reminiscent Yeah, I don't know if he did the pieces. earlier soundtracks, but at least Halo 4 soundtrack, the one yeah. we reviewed back in episode 30. And I, that was something I saw instantaneously for me. It was just tried and true, almost science fiction type of a setting, the way uh, the the instruments were arranged here. Um, like something we would have got from, like, maybe not as far back as 2001, but something you definitely could easily see in... See, yeah, science fiction, I mean, I almost want to go more general action because there's just nothing for me to latch on to in the whole space vibe here. There's yeah. very little aesthetic, there's very little other aesthetic being placed other than just dramatic action. And that's going to be one of my main problems, I think, with this. Uh, but I will but- agree with Matt on a point here, and that's that after you get that big, uh, that big brassy, um, halting section, 
that I find so annoying, it did sort of it did sort of peter out in a way that was fairly pleasing. In other words, once it ran its course, it transitioned fairly well into the very, very soft section. And I think that was a good transition, so that once I get the soft section, our secondary theme here, I thought it was just gorgeous. Gorgeous. The transit, I mean, the section primarily, but the transition was fine. So the gorgeous bit starts at around 2.20. Um, I'm using mostly timestamps since the technical part doesn't always come to me. But this gorgeous section, the thing that really highlighted for me is, in Act 1, we get, we get emotion, but it's a smattering, and it's kind of scattered. You know, they're there, and you get moments, but not movements. Yeah. This, you get a full movement, a full almost minute of this beautiful, just heart-wrenching tone. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It was almost, almost unbearable how heart-wrenching this was. And that was that combination of uh, the violins and the piano and one of my favorite instruments, the clarinet. And it just did a beautiful, beautiful piece uh beautiful figuration <laughs> with one another that really did uh, do soulful and to have it surrounded by such high energy almost almost bland action if that's not oxymoronic and what's what's even more what, what's actually pretty funny is that i think in that particular instance with the clarinet i believe that was complimenting <laughs> hilarious anyway oh, i'm sorry but i'm the, trying to but, use the words but you the teach big me. problem with this section is it came and went too fast. And it comes back later, but in this moment, I mean, you get only 30 to 40 seconds of it, and then it's rushed right into that generic bland action but again. But I actually liked that. I did enjoy the preview because the ending, <clears throat> excuse me, not the ending, the, the expansion that comes later is a nice, meaty piece of work and really goes in through some... Of the uh, better harmonies on this album, on this piece, uh, the, some of the more uh, beautiful uh, instrumentation of this piece. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole uh, symphony. It really became extremely expansive. I'm, I'm going to agree with that. Extremely expansive. So here's the thing. This the <clears throat> second movement, um, after thinking about it, is really kind of a split with me. Because I think it, it's it, the main... The main uh, way in which it suffers, I think, uh, is already what Matt has described. It's that back-and-forth nature of this this gorgeous section, which I would nearly liken almost to John Williams' uh, main Schindler List theme, if you want to, you know, just get a, a well, framework yeah, heavy for, for that type of sadness. Because and I'm not a, even joking, full, that's what I feel at this the moment. The full violin solo is heart-wrenching. Yeah. And what it goes into next, and I do love that reimagining with, once again, percussion, really, really deep percussive work, and just, it, the whole thing just comes together and screams heartbreak. Right, well that's, um, that's once it really starts developing, but the thing is you get teased a little bit. That's why I say that there's a back and forth nature, nature in the beginning of the second movement with that, that beautiful section and that really kind of annoying. I honestly think it's like he just got interrupted by Hans Zimmer. I said it was like Hans Zimmer just stepped in there and put graffiti all over this beautiful just, art piece. It's just, it's so polarizing. Yeah. And it just, it, I agree with Steve, it annoys me. And I'm not, and trying, get, to, I'm not trying to completely badmouth Hans Zimmer here. I think he's he has done great work for, for certain types of art form, art 
are, are for certain types of film for, for sure it fits certain frameworks and i felt like it just did not fit here it's just it's this... because you can't put a bland action sequence it's hard to imagine a scenario in which someone would go from utter sadness and and then to complete action it's back and forth that's a very very odd transition to accept but i did in fact imagine this <laughs> i saw it as more of uh, a scene work that is designing something while conflict is going on. You're getting heavy conflict, heavy conflict, and a snapshot of tragedy. Then back to that heavy conflict scene and the aftermath of tragedy. That's yeah. that's like the only way I can liken it. And I know of scene work that does something like that. Doesn't mean it's good, both in the visual and the auditory art. But it is something that has been done before. But explanation is not validation. Exactly. That's true. That's true. In my opinion, while I understand that they wanted to separate this preview of the heart-wrenching bit to really give the full impact of that beautiful violin solo and piano transfer that comes later, it's still not okay. It's just... I don't like it. it it's irking, and 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 it. And I mean, it, it comes down to interpretation. The yeah. end, like anything, it comes down to opinion, taste, and all that. Uh, for me, well, first of all, I, I want to say that it's it's. I I have no trouble, um, thinking that this this particular that that back and forth nature, that abrupt back and forth nature, was uh completely planned and and orchestrated by Serge Tankin himself because you know when something is so abrupt you figure there's got to be an artistic reason for it right. but it's, it's the whole piece is bookend with that vibrating flutter yeah it goes slow fast slow fast slow fast with reimaginings of each piece right but but I want to put it out there it is always possible of course that there were two great themes and they were smacked together and you know to some, to a certain ear, I could see that that disparity between the two. For, for instance, he was going for a dichotomy of the human condition, which I suppose is is conveyed here. But again, in that humanity one hundred and one kind of way, here's the beautiful thing, here's the scary warlike atmosphere. It's like there's no transit, there's no there's no gray area. Which I feel yeah. like if you're gonna explore the human condition, please explore the gray area. That's that's what I. I'd be more interested to hear, perhaps. Not I, not saying there's no reason to do the extremes. This could be all about the extremes, but they, it would almost seem like there'd be two separate art pieces. I then. think I think this the extremes would have been strengthened by a better separation and transition. That's what I feel might have made it better. Like if the materials transitioned better, or flowed better, or had a better connecting fiber. Or for instance, if there was a little of one in the other, like for instance the yin yang on the cover itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The Orca Yang. But but we've yeah. gone we've gone on enough about that abruptness because then we get to the about the halfway mark of the song and this is where the gorgeousness peace 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 <laughs> the peace kicks it up a notch. Um, it goes and revisits this this heart wrenching story, if you will, from the earlier in the song. But the violin takes a a strong lead. You get a beautiful solo that's encapsulating and crushing at the same time. It was that solo that really cemented this whole piece for me. Like I said before, it was that solo and the leading curtail, I don't know how to put it really, that lead in with the drum work that really, that yeah, hit Schindler's List. That really did hit that level of just despair. Yeah, I, and especially going with what you said before about this being the most uh, complex filled out section and probably the, probably the, um, 
maybe even the soul of the piece. I I thought that uh, his his talent as an orchestrator was really showed off here, or whoever orchestrated, because honestly, this was expertly voiced. There was the, the main the main melody that we were introduced um, the first time we heard it earlier in the movement uh, is just as strong as it ever was, and stronger in many moments because of how of how the harmonies are just are interplayed the the trade-offs of instruments and the swells it it really it brings out that melody which is something i you know i don't see too often in so many things we review we come across moments where a melody is is either it is either there or it's not and yeah. this is a moment where the melody the s the the soul of the of the piece as i said earlier the soul of the piece is often the melody and this is a moment in which that is highlighted and enhanced using other instruments using the framework at your disposal i just thought this was um an excellent an excellent example of that it was beautiful the way the violin solo yeah. seem almost seamlessly blends into a transfer to the piano taking over playing the same melody but do but making it its own piece of it. Right, and I should also say that there are moments here where it almost doesn't seem to change for a while. And yeah. to be honest, I was okay with that. Yeah, it because was that's pleasant. the thing. It was it's so pleasant, and you, I wanted more of that. I wanted to sit in a section and enjoy it for a while. And there is some spasticity throughout the rest of this. That's just really hard to grapple with sometimes. I mean, I want again. I want to sit in a certain section and. When you're throwing me around left and right, there's not a lot of immersion there. Well, I mean, but you d and you did get to sit though in this in this song, especially after f the four minute mark where it really kicks into this beautiful sh piece. It's just after that he defaults back to that. I don't want to say I, he terrible. Does. That's the thing. He defaults at the very end. Not here. terrible. I mean, at the baseline. No, I'm of this gonna. Is I bad. say honestly, even from an action perspective, like even if you're looking, not that I want to view this as an action film, but even if you are looking at it from that perspective, it's kind of a bad theme from that regard. In that regard, because there's so much, there's so much else out there. You know, there's so many great action films, and it's true they're not always noted for their music. And Hans Zimmer perhaps is one of the few that really is remembered for his action sequences. Um... And amongst other things, but you know, it's just it, I'm not sure it had a place in this particular, uh, in this movement or in this symphony here. But this at is, least not in that style. Well, yeah, and but this won't be the last time in this symphony that we have displaced action or intense moments. I yeah. mean, I feel like he Serge really has a grapple on emotionality and and can, trying to convey a certain feeling in parts, but in overall. He he! I think he just gets bored, or schizophrenic, or both. I think no, no, no. I Whoa, think it really. No, I think it's coming down to he's trying to show what he claimed to try to show, which is the dichotomy. Dichotomy. <laughs> Words are so hard. But he, if he he's using this word, this is his direct quote. He's trying to show that to his best of his ability. I think if he tried to show the union between the two. It would have made uh, some of this higher energy uh, more palpable right. in regard to the. That's the exactly somber. what I said earlier yeah. regarding um, you know exploring the gray areas. That would have yeah pal There's, palpable would have been, that's a very good word for what uh, what could have been been well, gained here. And I think mentioning lack of gray areas is actually the best way to put it because it is very sudden black and white. You know, there's no gray any, in most of it. I will say it's that the final build, though, to that last section was pretty uh, 
was pretty gorgeous. You had the brass complementing the background. That that was actually quite uh, a nice touch. The piano drives most of the percussion toward the end there, and it ends almost with the same flutter from the beginning with a, a more kind of a those brass harmonies that I'd liken to the kind you'd find in like Victorian era stuff. And I I like that. I just didn't like the um those those halting beats that were peppered throughout this 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 movement. It just didn't feel like it had a place in this movement. Yeah. Like kind of a corny villain, almost. Almost. I mean, it wasn't that cartoony, but no, but... no. I will attest to that. It felt like the classic. You could say good versus evil or high versus low kind of a deal. This is Superman and Lex Luthor, original conception, kind of a dichotomy. All right. Well, how about this? There was that the really low. There was that low tone. Villain. That low tone that the uh, whole movement ended on. I believe it might have been a bass clarinet. That is the corny villain. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and Which leads us to something else corny. Act three. So act three, Delphinius... Uh, Ke- I can't. Delphinus Capensis. And it's kind of sad I can say that. No, that, that's the is, job that we gave you. You yes, should do that one. You this, had to say this that is, one. Uh, this actually is the biological term of the common dolphin. So Here we are. Right right off the bat, something that, you know, is different from the others is the intro to this song just, I mean, it was so disappointing. It and was pop. It's, a, it's okay. You know those moments? Yeah, no, no, just to say, there's, there's moments where the piano steps in there and you're like, ooh, ah, this is not one of those times. No, the f- a piano began a third movement to a symphony and it was very, very bland, very basic. It was pop. It was a four chord progression and I didn't want to hear it at the And moment. it's just late. I feel like, especially after all Serge has shown us at this point, this is just laziness. Like, I can't think of any other reason why that would be there. Because, not that I'm down on all four chord progressions, but even just, like, the one that was chosen at this point, it, it's it's the minor one, major six, major three, and major seven, leading back to that minor one. It's actually called, uh, throughout certain circles on the internet, the sensitive female chord, which is pretty funny when you really think about it and its place in this piece. Um, because it's the kind that you'd find in, uh, let's think of an example here, Joan Osborne, you know, what if God was one of us? Yeah. It's the same exact chord progression. So what's that doing here? It's, <laughs> it's, just, it's just... I'm trying to think of a framework in which this is useful because, I mean, I'm maybe it's a time for sensitivity here, and I'm not going to try to harp on this too much because once the violins overtake it, you're not really that focused on the fact that it's a four chord progression. But even the violin, that melody is really, really bland by comparison. So but it's almost it, like a non intro. It could also harken to the actual title, The Common Dolphin. Common, <laughs> the average everyday dolphin who just no no no. To it actually the, the it's it's referred to as the common dolphin. That's actually the name of that species of dolphin. Like we would have a basset hound. This is the common dolphin. So, okay. But Maybe he's trying. That... He's purposely going mainstream. <laughs> going mainstream for the dolphin's sake. Well, the common dolphin who listens to pop. This is how far the orca has fallen. <sighs> I don't know. It's so I don't know. Weak. Or is it another character? No, well, I will say... Could be another character. <clears throat> supporting character, perhaps. It could be. But the goofy comic relief. We, we have to give Serge credit. He's a very, very smart man. There probably is meaning here. No. Um, he probably well, was going there. Wait, 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 wait. No, He's of going course there me. is. Yes. I'm just saying there's better things that could have been done at this, this moment is, in his epic. This is, this is me doing devil's advocate because I really found it bland and... Even worse for me for this beginning was that really, really abrupt build. 
But well, I, here's the thing. I found something else about that four chord progression, which I didn't even mention to you earlier because I wanted to wait for this bombshell. Because it came to me after I'd already mentioned all these Hans Zimmer. Uh, oh, that sounds like Hans Zimmer. That sounds like Hans Zimmer in its in its execution of the epic action sequence, whatnot. And this four chord progression is actually called the Hans Zimmer chord by another circles around the internet they call it the Hans Zimmer chord because it is commonly used in this exact aspect. Perhaps, of course, in his case, not toward the pop aspect, but as a basic four chord progression while you uh, do all these swooning strings over to sort of elude that there is epicness where there is none. And, it, you know, yeah, but, but there's the content at this point is a little bit weak. I feel like the story has not been linear enough. Certain, uh, certain characters, i.e. Certain, uh, certain melodies have not been expanded enough, except the one that we really, really noted uh, for me to to really accept this at this moment. And also saying the whole bit about oh, he's an intelligent guy, so this has to be planned. That baloney, because I know plenty of intelligent people who do th stupid things and make mistakes. I'm not saying that this is a mistake or that he did something stupid. I'm just saying that his intelligence is irrelevant. The fact is... It's artistic... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I it, mean, artistic it, choice. I just... And whether I'm not really and, on board at this moment. Yeah, and artistic choice isn't always the most intelligent choice. And in this case, I just don't feel that it was. I feel like clearly, yes, of course, he probably had a purpose to this, and he was going. Look, for I something. have a feeling that when we walk out of this this review at the end of the day here, we're all going to be able to say, okay, yes, from from a from a goal standpoint, he probably achieved exactly what he was going for. But the dichotomy is clear. In fact, the dichotomy is so clear it's it's jarring at times. So <laughs> he. Yeah, he got his human dichotomy down, but yeah, it's you know, just you know how gotta take he got other considerations into account. The journey—he's gonna get to the destination. It's just parts of the journey that could have been yeah. better planned. Yeah. So it was at this moment where I was really kind of confused about uh, about the, where I was in this piece at the moment. The melody itself was just kind of general. I I actually thought it, it felt like the the decisive moment, perhaps when a hero is going to undertake his challenge. As in, there's nothing really going on, but perhaps the, the moment psychologically has been reached, or you're on your way to the battle, and for some reason the movie is showing a bunch of landscape sequences as you're on your way to the journey. This, it's, it's, not really a, it's not really a moment. This is the scene in Hercules where they're singing Zero to Hero. Why not? Why yeah. not? Sure, but the guy there, you sure, can go except in that, there's great transitional material, both visually and chorusly, that leads the, the, the transition and the progression of that story. That's Here, the problem, in my opinion, the framework. You lack the framework. Exactly. You're not, the, the transitions that, yes. weren't great in the other two, pie two pieces, but here, they're barely existent at yeah. all. There was no moment prior to this where I felt like the necessity for doing such needed to be reached, and there's really no immediate battle that, that comes right afterwards. Tricky. The, the, I mean, the thing about it really is that because of these weak transitions, you're, you almost feel like you're being forced along this story. You're not along for the ride. You're not even sure you're on the same ride. You might well, be three cars back. You're going, you're going from that really basic piano with those almost do-nothing violins into that really abrupt build, into military snare drum, into and happy go lucky violins again. Like this, you get that, another, yeah, the other thing. thing. You get another four chord progression in there, which is even which is a little bit more positive. Um, it's it's just it 
picks just, everything up and I just yeah, the I military know. snare drum also is so it's not it's very very military so it's not joyous it's not sad it's just very military well see that almost fits the idea that I put forth that there's a that there's a journey here and now you finally yes, reach the moment the crux point but see that's the thing once it turns positive there once you go that's to that second part. four this is about about two minutes and thirty seconds in when everything just gets so positive it's a different set of chords here I think it was F major F major dominant seventh the pedal starts going down but everything stays so generally uh upbeat that it's hard to accept that as the as the that crux point that 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 battle in which you're in fear for your life no it's just um again i'm I'm just postulating as the frameworks that i've been given because once once you give me something like that snare drum it's like well well all right i i do expect something fairly militaristic there's just these emotion changes which again might fall into that dichotomy thing, but I just I don't understand. Like, and also to say that not a person I know. No, yeah, and to say that there's a crux is I mean also very loose because there's no really tur- there's no real turning point. It just goes from thing to thing to thing to thing. Well, it's like that movie criticism where you have to believe your character. If you don't believe your character, then the movie's really really going to suffer. Even if it's a off the wall character, there has to be some element there where you understand uh, the circumstances that happen to him or her in order to lead them to the place where they might do that really off-the-wall decision. I'm just not understanding any of this progression at the moment. And we've listened to pieces that are shorter than this that give us that hero's journey and feel in shorter time with more conviction. Yeah. Whereas here, where we're almost, they're they're going, it's the hero, hey, he's the good guy, get on board, and you're just like, You know what what really does that the best was that really fast piano work towards the the latter part of the... the uh, piece, the really kind of tapping piano, the light piano. I really, I like that when used in other places. And here it just fell flat. Because that can really do a great job well, of see, doing that's, that's actually high end hener- energy. Might, might have gotten a little bit a lot of, here. Might have had a, had a little bit of a, a, a discrepancy in, in order here. But yes, that, that was actually the. When the snare drum comes, first you get the whole positive four chord progression, and then you have this really drop, this massive drop-off, this awkward, if not bad, outright bad transition, because everything was just so sudden at this point, probably one of the most abrupt transitions in the in the symphony, to that piano rumbling, kind of in an auditorium, but that was the part that was actually accompanied by the snare drum. And then, after that, it did take somewhat of a positive turn for me, and I mean that just in terms of of there being new material, new ideas... Uh, that piano, as you as you're talking about, sort of rolling on that same figuration, but sort of changing the pedal tone a little bit, started adding some interesting textures in the flutes overhead, uh, which was almost minimalistic. Like, and I know this this name comes up a lot in in our past podcast, but uh, Steve Reich, that, that minimalist, um, it reminds me yet again of that piece, music for eighteen musicians, which seems to be a running theme in my life here. And I looked at it as as I was. There's two words that came to mind when I was listening to that. Metronome, monotone. That's all I was getting by that point. Well, it is fairly monotone. Is that like, it? Yeah, no, no, that's no. the minimalistic part. It doesn't really change. I felt like I was watching how things are made, and they were showing me how toothpaste gets in the tube. Ah. It really hit that level of just kind of mind-numbing, oh, that's how they do that. See, now, just to talk about aesthetic here, because we're going to get into this later in our topic, is that the, the emotions, the things with certain uh, certain 
motifs, certain figurations will bring to mind can often uh, bring up little uh, you know, things in your past. And that, that, for instance, is we are right online with. I hear that that modernist element, like how things are made or or a factory at work, almost like the educational or videos you'd find, the clips you'd find on ring. PBS back in the 80s yeah, when everything is... was just so positive. Industry, factory work, right? And you'd have this, they would sometimes use like uh, very basic computer tones in order to make that that figuration. Oh. Almost the same thing that the flutes are doing here. Really interesting to hear uh, um, uh, an orchestra doing that same style. It would have been great if they had gotten Leonard Nimoy to explain the laser disc. Oh, that would have been so cool. That's, that would have been it. That's, that's the it level right there. we're hitting here. That's the level. It was... Yes. For it those was, who don't know, that's a commercial from the old... Uh, we talked about 1979. Yeah, that probably came up probably back when we were with but, Gary and Nick. But... That's like the best part of this piece is a nice, monotone, informative infomercial. Well, that's the thing. Again, has no place whatsoever. It was completely divorced to the really rest of it. I really did like it. Uh, but it could have been something. It could have been it a whole separate been a, idea. It could have been a great introduction to something better. It would have been a great transitional piece to yeah. something else. So I'm saying there's nothing really wrong uh, with what he's doing in terms of orchestration. I think orchestration is just top of the notch, really. Um, it's it's just the choices that he makes, I think, are, are... They throw people off. At least they throw me off. They seem to have thrown both you guys off, so... Uh, there you are. <laughs> it just wasn't enough to save this piece, I feel. And I mean... No, it doesn't save it. And then, I mean, even after that, I mean... First of all, the way that he wraps up this track, to me, is just so cliche it was just a cop-out especially considering that everything that came before it i just felt like he could have closed this piece with some kind of interesting flourish it was something it was one of those moments where you know it just kind of it it did expand on the same melodies from earlier that were vague in the beginning and they're still vague now and it like i think it's more suited to the background of a film at this point not not when anything particular is happening but when you're just trying to sort of not set a scene, but just paint a scene. Almost impressionist in that regard. Uh, maybe. What's, but what's he trying to do? Finish a montage? And, I don't and know. The what's going on here? And the reality no, is, is we're not watching a movie. We're just listening to this. Well, so for, I will admit, some of this did evoke just impressions. This, yeah. But this, this didn't. This, this part falls flat. flat. You're almost bored by the end. There are moments where it varies in the very, very end. Uh, the chords start to get very, very sad in moments, and I think that maybe could have been controlled a little better. The problem, again, is is, is framework. Uh, those, those particular sad chords, as this movement starts petering out, uh, they could have been highlighted. They could have been highlighted, but, but instead they were just kind of Drops. They just drop off, yeah. Not just sad, but actually sad. Yes. Emphasis. Sad with reason. Yes. <laughs> yes, which we got earlier, so we know he's capable of. And we actually do get later. A capability is yeah. not a not a moment, not a question. question at all. Yeah. So, let's move on to Act Four. Lamentation of the Beached. All right. This First is... of all, okay, I gotta put this out there. Steve taught me a new instrument today, and now it has become one of my favorite instruments, the duduk. 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 <laughs> duduk, duduk. I don't know. I actually don't know how to pronounce it precisely, but um, it's an Armenian instrument, which, uh, again, uh, Serge Tankin is Armenian-American, so I'm sure he has some family in, uh, influence here, or perhaps he just takes an interest in his roots in this regard, but 
I gotta say, this is the this is the most Middle Eastern element that we've had here since the first movement. It's I want it to be a positive because it is again it's a defining feature of this symphony. It's it's insanely unique. It stands out so far above the rest of the goings on that you're drawn to it almost hypnotically, and yet I can't call it a defining feature because it it's the fourth movement now. We're kind of at we're at what should be the crux, and we haven't had that that style since the first movement. When I for, first pointed out that there was a little bit of uh, work there off off of the Phrygian mode, just that intro, the intro yeah. of the very first movement, we had this, and we haven't had it since. And what's a real shame is that this the deduct becomes to me, and I I I think the two gentlemen on my sides here agree became. A, the voice of an orca. It really does evoke that sort of super sub underwater harmonics that you see in, you know, your National Geographic specials. What's so disappointing is, considering how beautifully it's used, that could have easily, easily have been the orca. It could have been the voice of this symphony. It is, and because it also sounds very mournful, and this is probably the first time we're really going to start uh, employing Ark here. I mean, at least just in terms of the title, Lamentation of the Beached. Obviously a beached whale, the the orca, and it it is kind of mournful. I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to be beached, and there's, a, there's of course, that wailing, no pun intended, that a whale lets out, which is, is almost really sad. And, and you would think almost that be, really. because the context is so sad... That it would be said throughout, considering the situation. There'd be this direness, this urgency. One would think. But no. With so every yin about we 30 seconds. About 30 seconds <laughs> into this track, it gets this almost playful conflict completely out of place of this kind of almost tick-tocking kind of feeling. It goes, it goes, high energy, high energy, tap, 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 high energy, high energy, tap, tap, tap. What was that first part again? And the problem with... so weird. So the problem with this is that there's so many gorgeous moments in this piece, but it just starts with this ridiculousness and then pursues this ridiculous on and off Throughout the entire piece. From, from this piece, it goes into a very beautiful... Um, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's just... It's the duck and the violin... Uh, the piano. Uh, sort of trading off together. each other, yeah. And, and then later and, on, the, the whole string section starts joining in with the duck as well. And truly beautiful. Yeah. This this one, this actually evoked some, some, some imagery for me. It was sort of like the idea... It, it became the idea of like... Uh, fallow feels like true destruction of nature it really really was beautiful to me it really did something for me yeah well i will say something about the um the back and forth nature here uh it it, it made it a lot easier to analyze from a form standpoint uh i'm i'm nearly certain this is a a, a textbook rondo here with the a forms if you break up the part sections a b a c a abaca <laughs> if you could call it that it's uh think of a well first think of an intro which we disregard and then think of an a as being that fairly annoying section uh with i, I believe it uses wood blocks on that point where you uh, called it like a clock mat yeah almost, almost like a tick tocking yeah almost back and forth but yeah it's um 
It's probably the only bit of humor in this piece. Well, I know I take that. Uh, I was going to say in the symphony because there is humor earlier. There is playfulness here. But this is just ridiculousness. Well, it's, it's absurdity. That's actually, why at this point. I said it was ridiculousness because it just seems so out of place considering the sincerity of the other parts. It just seems so out of place. And I don't know if that dichotomy is supposed to put you so unnerved. Well, but dichotomy is the word of the day and the word that defined this piece from the horse's mouth. So that's that's the thing we have to accept. Also, there's some connectivity going on here because this is almost the same exact problem that we were experiencing in the early part of Act 2. Yeah. Same problem. Something really annoying, something gorgeous. But this was like I could Back endure I could endure the annoying parts of 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 Act 2 just because there was still some connectivity. This just seems so divorced from each other. It just I, I didn't I couldn't I just didn't see any connection between them. Yeah, at the no, same time as all this high conflict going on, when we get to the beautiful parts, I'm actually picking up uh reinvention from the theme work of the first piece of Act One. And that would that, that might have made it worse for me. That might have actually made what happened here worse because we had a connection. Now, now we're actually getting the introduction of the symphony reimagined and presented to us in just beautiful ways without the connectivity of the, the duck and what it actually did here without the uh, with this shoehorned high energy. And then, okay, in our C section, and this, this is something we've talked about before, there are... Two distinct moments of silence that really are heart wrenching. Silence for me. is a powerful thing to use, and, and he he just hits it like the perfect moment to hit mute. I love them, and but 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 messed up, just pure fledged, messed up with with what's going on around it. It just hurts. Though I will say that you noted the C section, and the C section as a whole, I thought was beautiful. And thankfully, it is the it is the point um, which I think was he sort of reveled in for a while. Yeah. He uh, that was probably the longest section of this piece, and yeah, it starts off with that light pizzicato again, uh, reminiscent uh, from a few acts earlier. Uh, this very soft violin melody, um, in place. That's what makes this sort of distinctive uh, from from section B with the. Um, with where the Duduk is, is is dominant, but it, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous, and I just I wanted so much more of it. Well, this they returned to it. It did last. I'll say it lasted, but it returned once more. You had to return. I mean, I suppose if you're completing in Rondo format, you got to return to A at some point, and they do. And it's the same goofiness that the piece kind of ends on. Well, the symphony kind of ends on. And he uses the best parts of Victorious Arcanus to to. To make that C section, yeah. he really integrated it so well. The well, because the, well, the 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 C section pretty much has this beautiful partnership between the deduct and all the other instruments that had been playing up into that point. The violin, it, the it piano, it truly becomes a it voice. Be, yeah, it, yeah, it really does. The the voice had not been stronger than this moment. But the problem is, is that even though you have this beautiful dirge going it still goes back to that A section that should have been gone by now. It just doesn't make sense to close with that A section. Yeah. It just seems so bizarre. I mean, yes, I get it. Dichotomy, you want to show, you want it to be polarizing. And if that's what he's going for, then great, he did it. He did. But 
it's just not what I'm looking for. That's polarization without art. Yeah. At that point, to me. Or it's, it's art without the musicality to back it up. Yeah. Well, I, I should never say without art. Everything is art. But yeah. it's, um, I, I... Musically, it's not what you or I don't know anyone who would be looking for. I just, I can't imagine someone else listening to this and going, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I don't want to harp, but there are an infinite other number of applications that I could think for that section, which... Well, it's the A section, but we might as well just call it the ridiculous section, as we seem yeah. to have dubbed it. Uh, for instance, that that playful and yet sort of sporadic nature feels like it would really accompany, almost almost to a T, the kind of action sequences that you would find in more lighthearted film, like a Disney film, yeah. right? There's usually an action sequence in Disney films. Yeah. Something the kids can't handle, but it's always peppered with a lot of vaudevillian comedy, where the the villain is falling over himself or you've got a little side character who's sort of meddling and making things a little bit more difficult for the villain in question. Or do- at least Dopey Dwarf has shown up and he's, exactly. he's, there's jokes. Exactly. But it's just, it's so brief. It just goes nowhere. I hesitate almost even to call it an A section because it, it's practically a sound bite. It occurs once yeah. and that's it. No, and There's no development of it at all and there's no integration. So it's... I hate I really do hate, considering what we've said about the symphony so far, that we have to close it on that note. It just seems like such a bizarre place to end. It really does. It does. I mean, <laughs> you want to work your magic, John, and swing this into how into how uh, I, I, the human dichotomy is, is... Seriously, it's... I can make an argument for this, but it's convoluted and it makes a lot of liberties on just the idea of what he's going for here. Yeah, I, I, I see what he I went for. That. I see, I see the art he was attempting, but there's just, he, I want him to just stay sad. His sad is so beautiful. His forlorn, his hopelessness. It was the most does, affecting parts were the, the sad parts. That he was, actually, that's, that's a revelation for me. I didn't even realize that initially. There, there, that really is, is the soul of this piece. There's very little that I'm, that I'm drawing from the, as I call it, the action sequences or from the playful sequences. They're just they're not... They, they're very superficial. They are, exactly. They That's are very, exactly very it. superficial. Perfect. They're for effect and nothing else. And I, or to I, provide variety. Yeah. Yeah. And in I, closing, it's... I'll start. This, it was... Oh, man. The most heart-wrenching depths of this of the darkness that is here and there is some darkness here in in just theme work not not that angry side of the darkness but that really hopelessness side just really hit some beautiful levels it's it's hamlet level i mean it's really like macbeth level but it's kind of like at points you got shoehorned with you know donkey from shrek yeah, I, I withdraw my I withdraw my earlier statement about the Shakespeare act thing. I do believe you can convey that in music. It just needs to be, you know, needs to be kind of tailor made. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's like it's like instead of you know, in, instead of Hamlet, you know, being being Hamlet, he's got Timon and Puma stuck next to him. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And it's it. <laughs> yeah, like, I want I want to ask: Is that the human condition? There's, is is, okay, is that what, you, we, what no, our lives are? No, it's not. Otherwise, things would be really messed up. But, okay, yeah, it's got dichotomy, but I don't know if it's the human dichotomy it's showcasing here. 
I, I think it's just showcasing two very different ideas that were a little forced in coming together. Because the composition is there. He really does a great job of putting pieces together. Right. Even the parts that are distasteful for us are really just well designed. That's just not what we wanted. Um, the finish was the disappointing part, but there was a lot I did like about Act 1 and Act 4. And it really was touching. There were parts that were very touching. It was interesting. It did have a lot of modern feels, and I saw the influence of his earlier work here, his earlier ideas, because I'm a huge fan, so I was able to be nitpicky. Um, and this is obviously outside what I would know of as his comfort zone, so that is just, you know, ballsy. But ballsy, balls won't get you quality. I enjoyed it as a whole and in lots of moments, but there were parts I didn't like. So, 3-5. It's really, really good where it's good, but it gets bad where it's bad. So, yeah. Quality, just not enough. 3-5. Stuff like this is tough for me to judge. I mean, I like my fair share of classical and instrumental stuff, but as I've gone on record saying before... You have to be a, a specific kind of composer to really hook me emotionally without lyrics. Um, because I do find a lot of emotion in lyrics, which is sometimes why bands like him goof me up, because their lyrics don't denote the same thing their music are. Is. Was. Does. Thank you. <laughs> With this, however, it's like... I mean, it's not bad. Duh. Serge Tankin didn't do something bad. Okay, great. Moving on. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, sky's blue, he writes okay music, to good music. My biggest problem with this is, clearly, he has an interest and a talent in this. There are moments that are so gorgeous, without words, you pick up exactly the emotion he's trying to convey. That said, the, it's clear that he had an appetizer sampler. Little bits of things he liked and stuff that he wanted. And he couldn't find a way to used them on their own. So instead he created the Appetizer Sampler Symphony. He created something to put these things together. Things that you would think would go okay together, but in practice, not so much. You know, okay, I gotta say, that was awesome. I like that. Appetizer Symphony. I really like that. I mean, it's just, you know, he's plucking... Appetizer Symphony with Humanity 101. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what the we got here so it. far. And... I don't know. I just like I. Lo it's no secret that I like Serge a lot, and I've I like, I grew in and out, and then back into System of a Down. They matured, and then his solo stuff has been very even way more mature than a lot of the System stuff. Um, but I just I don't get that maturity here. He shows his noviceness, and that could just be because he is actually a novice at writing symphonies, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm and there's enough skill that I'm interested to see what he does. I hope there's an Orca Symphony number two. I want to see an evolution of this. I want him to fine-tune this. Because there's there's good bits here. The sad was so heart-wrenching and beautiful. If there was a whole piece on here that was just that, with the right peppered transitions, that could be a competitor for most emotional song of the year. But the reality is it's so just disjointed, especially in that final, damn you, Abaca. 
damn you. <laughs> you, because that song. The rondo got you, didn't the it? The rondo, it just, it, it was really terrible. The whole song, I, I mean, I like that middle bit, but it's so hard. You have to get through the bad to get to that middle bit. It's just, what's the point? Because it, it kind of ruins that whole overall emotion of that song. It really does. It's hard to stay invested in that sadness with those ridiculousness peppered through it. Mm. So that said, it's not average. But then again, for Symphony, yeah, I think it might be. Is it better than average? Considering the symphonic work that's come before it, I just, I, I don't know that I could rate it that much better than average Symphony work. And that's not a bad thing for Serge, since he's not typically writing symphonies you know it's not below average but for me there's so much exceptional symphony work out there that i just feel like because of the mistakes made it just falls a little bit above average it's a a 3.25 for me it barely makes it over the cusp of average because there's so much symphonic work peppered with other interesting things that i like so much more hmm well, I will disagree with you on one point. Uh, you said that he, that it wasn't mature for him. I do think this is mature for him, at least as a goal. I mean, he outlined his goal for us. For sure, we might not have picked up on that had we not had his quote to go along with here. Uh, and in fact, if it weren't for that quote, we might have even been a little bit more harsher because then the dichotomy would, would simply have been abrupt. And we... We're kind of harsh on abruptness, because, um, not to say that you can't pull an abrupt section and and stir emotion. That, ideally, that's what abrupt sections should do, and maybe that's what he hoped for. But even that requires context of some kind, and the context is what's lacking here. It always seems to go back to context. I, I am probably the most, uh, the most versed in symphonics works here of the three of us probably i <laughs> definitely I, are i i enjoy listening to this kind of thing i i love hearing orchestral instruments because i think their capacities know no bounds and the fact that mainstream uh mainstream media doesn't follow like contemporary classical pop, uh, compositions i think is kind of a shame uh although the appetizer uh symphony as you put it matt that mainstream culture does get is probably from cinematic music that's really what i think mainstream uh media understands the best because there's everything is laid out for them if you see what's going on on screen then the music the music is just is accompaniment but i do believe that music should speak for itself and this is a really really strange case because this was intended as as a, a piece where the music should speak for itself without the cinematic nature, and I almost feel like I need some kind of movie to tell me what's going on. I need something on screen telling me the human dichotomy, and I, I hate saying this because I hate to be one of those people. Like, there's a lot of people I know out there who go into classical music with that regard. It's just like, well, I just, I feel like there should be something going on, and it's always that, you know, come on, open up your ears, imagination, bring out your imagination. But I'm I'm sorry to say this is just something I can't do that for. I think that the ideas are flushed out with a cinema in mind, and that's just not there. In other words, it begs a little bit too much from the listener. Uh, when certain sections occur, you're just meant to sort of take them for what they're worth and and put the pieces together yourself. But the pieces, it, it's kind of a difficult puzzle. 
if you take the four movements here and you try to piece it together, you will merely find little motifs here and there that blend it. And more so than that, it's the things that, that are different, drastically different, that that really strike more of a chord. For instance, the fact that the duduk comes out of nowhere. I love it. I really do love it. But I just, I can't, I can't wrestle with that fact, the Middle Eastern element, which I, by all means, thought that it should have, it should have, would have been here from the start, from the first movement. It should have been a persistent element. Should It should have guided this piece and maybe provided more aesthetic for it, which, again, we're coming to in just a couple of minutes. Aesthetic, I think, was the lacking moment. I think that's where he was all over the place with. Where am I, you know, in the thing? If I don't have a story, then I just have a cacophony of aesthetics. So, it's a sad thing. Because on the micro scale, I really, really, really enjoyed uh, what he was doing. I think he's incredibly skillful at orchestration, at bringing melodies out, beautiful melodies, and highlighting them. Uh, I just think it's that next step that could have shown a little more maturity, as you put it, Matt. But... I gotta give it some credit for that, um, for that orchestral work. Three, three, six. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm using, I'm using the finer decimals down in the threes now. I had to for this one. Three, three six. Point six. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just, I think, and also part of it is a disappointment with expect, I mean, it's Serge Tankin. We, we've just come to expect so much from him. But the reality—it's a hero letting you down a little bit. A little bit, but also the reality is—I mean, I've heard plenty of classical music. I might not be as trained in the finer points as Steve is, but I—I I know when I'm confused, and I'm confused, and that's the reality <laughs> of it. There's just—it's so disjointed. I've heard—I've heard dubstep classical composition that was less confusing. Yeah, than this. Um, but speaking to what Steve was saying about aesthetic, I find that. I just well, just quickly before you begin, I do want to say that it's that high art form, which is why the reason I claimed it was a more mature piece. I do think that Star Surge Tanking continues going in this direction. I think there will there will be a unified piece with the same maturity that was found here. I agree. So, in a sense, he was sort of shooting for, for the top. He was shooting for the, not only am I going to uh, compose a symphony, but I'm going to have a greater theme here that will be present in, the pre- in, in all of the... Um, Subsequent uh, works. Exactly. Well, so, so I mean, uh, inner workings, mm-hmm. uh, okay. melodies, and so forth. It's just, it's that part where he failed. But I don't think that's a sign of immaturity. I think that's a sign of just maybe right. short-sightedness. Yeah, I guess it's fair. I mean, but short-sightedness, you could be yeah, short-sighted. Yeah, I mean, they can go hand-in-hand hand quite easily. Um, but but you did you did mention aesthetic a bit, and I've been thinking about something. So I'm, I'm a person, specifically, um, who... Music informs a lot of my life, my work, you know, my play, what I do, my hobbies. A lot of it is very much influenced by music. But what I really started thinking is, do people's tastes in music sway the aesthetics they find interesting outside of it? And vice versa. I.e., for example, on a large scale, you know, does the music you listen to and prefer affect the movies you see, the hobbies you you, you go for, the... The, the video games you play, you know, the the type, the decorations you put up, or how you decorate your home. I'm going to say, just, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to be abrupt right now. Ready for me, the abruptness? Uh-huh. I agree. I, I think it does 100%. Uh, 
at least in my life that is that is 100 percent the case i can't I, i'll go into details in a minute but i i'm i'm pretty much solidifying that as a yes right now and i'll say that it might actually be the other way around for me uh. more than anything else um and i'll use a specific example the reason i like electronica is because of my video gaming is because of its pervasive use in some video games uh, genres and the fact i enjoyed listening to it while playing said games well see now there's a thing i think it goes back and forth for me as well like i think both are true it's not yeah. it's not so much uh one or the other i think it's that one will breed the other depending upon whichever i get first and whatever i happen to associate it with I, so for me just an, an example for instance is aesthetics like time periods and and art forms of certain times like like 1920s 1930s art deco i love that thing. so of course if i like a, a a piece like george gershwin's rhapsody in blue which i've heard since a very very young age and and grew to love that might might be inspiring my love for the, that said art form or vice versa it it kind of it kind of depends when you look at uh, what you were exposed to first. Sometimes that's hard to remember. Well, I mean, but I think I don't think there's a, a definite one only influences the other. I think that it's true of most hobbies or interests. They influence each other. I mean, the, the reality that mo anyone who grew up playing card games or board games probably will like some semblance of other strategy games if they're video games or whatever. But, I mean, for me specifically, I'm a plethora of pop color pop culture knowledge and i was raised on both the classics and plenty of pop music so i think that informs a lot of my pop culture taste the fact that i like a lot of pop culture movies and references is because i like that pop of you know trivia knowledge almost if you will hmm. and that's informed by listening to a lot of a spectrum of popular music maybe it's the road less traveled for me but i tend to go toward i guess i'm kind of that same way around culture in general that isn't so much in the public eye at the moment because I want it to be in the public eye. If I don't see something every single day, and if it's something, especially if it's something I like, I want it to be there. I want it to be present in 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 things that I'm watching. Uh, who knows? Because I don't always like you know what pop culture does to old fashioned things. For instance, uh, for instance, since I was talking about Art Deco before, uh, a a book like The Great Gatsby, right? And the way in which the modern Great Gatsby was done, I'm not really a fan of, because to me that's something that should be integrated with the aesthetic of the time. And the aesthetic at the time was 1920s pop, and yet it was infused with so much modern music. I understand that's modern culture's idea of reimagination, but a great story that for all intents and purposes, Leonardo DiCaprio could have... I, I haven't seen it yet, personally. It's just, honestly, it, it is the trailer that, that turns me away from it, because it's the aesthetic that turns me away. Yeah. It's that music itself. Leonardo DiCaprio should, could have done a great job. He could have been Gatsby to a T. He all, every everything in the book could have lined up with the book, and the story could have been perfect. But yet, if the aesthetic isn't there, I'm not going to be 100% on board with it. It's very important for me. And yet, I'm still trying to figure out if I could think of anything like that. Well, like I don't, I can't really think of anything in my life that I feel like music has actually influenced me to either like or dislike. Well, I think this is a general uh, discussion of aesthetic at this point. It does yeah. not have to be music, but but music is is, is sort of... I'm not going to say at the core of aesthetic, but it, it 
it makes me feel a time perhaps better than many other art forms do. Well, it's like with we when we discussed John Williams, I had said that was a time where music did influence uh, at least an interest. Like hearing the snippets of the soundtrack for the book Thief that we listened to, just because we knew it was his newest work, right? Liking how that sounded and how beautiful it was said made me go, well, maybe I should check out this movie when I had not really had any interest before. That's that. I think why we had our whole John Williams special back in episode sixty nine with Nate Ryder because it, John Williams, I think has an aesthetic unto himself and that's why we we sort of just swoon over him and that everything he touches turns to gold because there's so many stories out there or, or so many movies that could have been made perhaps with different composers that i just don't think would have had the same edge had he not been in the composer's chair but i i'm gonna say i don't think one influences the other i i i feel like you can't really divide that a equals B, or A leads to B. It's it's not really an ipso facto kind of a situation here. It's more of one and the other at the same time. Because of the associations between the two, I mean, just, just think 1969, Woodstock, was the first thing that comes to mind. Tie-dye. Vans. <laughs> drugs. Wasn't going to be the first thing that came to mind, but but, you know, but why these not? are all things that people will think of iconically. You think you know Jimi Hendrix. You think you know marijuana and tie dye. I think Janis Joplin and... would have been my answer to that yeah. if you hadn't spoken ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. There's all the whole things of. I'm just making a point here. Like there's it just association wise. There's just every sense just gets everything else associated with it. No, I actually think you're making a very very good point there because. Uh, yeah, in the public eye, it's really just what you get, what you get and see and hear simultaneously. So, yeah, I, I there. I think it has to do more in that point uh, with the type of person you are. There are people who like to, for instance, just the difference that me and you outlined, Matt. You know, by by looking at pop culture and wanting to be sort of a a, a pop culture encyclopedia, essentially, you're very much in the present day, yeah. right? A lot of times I do feel like I, I you know, people have the, that idea like I would have belonged better in a certain time period. In reality, I kind of like the time period that I'm in right now because uh, having certain things like the internet and all these other modern amenities allow me to be so versed in so many things simultaneously. A luxury that I probably couldn't afford it in like the 20s and 30s. Um, but yet I, I like how how that was sort of on the rise at the time. I Even to go back further... Uh, 19th century uh, stylizations. Now, that would be a little bit more trickier because that's harder to associate with music because even late 19th century, you're talking about multiple types of art forms here. Are you talking about the classical music that was around the late 19th century? Or are you talking about sort of the ragtime that was around? Because those are two very, very different things. Well, I will say the first thing that when you say late 19th century, I'm thinking uh, the taming of the West. And actually, to be frank, and I'm thinking... Ragtime's true roots with the the western upright piano and girls kicking out on stage. See, now this is a, a, a discrepancy of aesthetic. In this case, we're not aligned because I often go more toward... I, I either go, I go toward... I think vaudeville, first and foremost. First and foremost, huh? Yeah. I, I think maybe it's because I have classical knowledge now. Um, 
maybe you know it depends on how like 10 years ago who knows what i would have thought because i actually did uh, grow up playing ragtime on the piano so that's that is definitely there um in my mind but you're on a different continent from me well yeah i was probably more i guess more in europe because the thing is impressionism is really where my mind goes now the whole like uh, bohemian Paris scene of Debussy, Claude Debussy, and later Ravel, that kind of thing, is really more what I think of these days. And that to me is just a, that's again, it's an aesthetic association. But it's not to me, it's not to say that I don't also think of uh, New York, for instance. I'm a huge New York buff, so I think almost anything pertaining to New York art forms, which are ever changing and very, very versatile, uh, I have a closeness to well you're also one of the first to point out in urban setting you or john both are very quick if if something sounds very urban you're quick to yeah, identify i said it. that in the last episode actually with yeah. um a uh, machine drum because it was sort of following this sort of uh, the chill wave atmosphere of it felt like the right blend of ambient and techno that it was sort of right in line with that very dense urban setting a lot of stuff going on simultaneously almost overwhelmed by the density and that's an aesthetic that i'm also very very attracted to well i am actually just as an aside trying to find somebody who's done a subway album which i think would probably be something we we could do uniquely but sadly not a whole lot of bent garbage cans and plastic barrels recorded for mass media how about stomp That don't count. That's Broadway. <laughs> That's a whole different. Actually, well, Broadway is quintessential New York. Uh, it's not on, not on Broadway. I anymore. don't think Stomp. Uh, I think Stomp is off wait, wait, Broadway. Wait. Yeah. Above ground and below ground, two very different New Yorks. That's true. Uh, Blue Man Group too, though. Also. Oh yeah, no, there we go. There we style. go. Oh, of course. I mean, uh, aesthetic. I mean, actually, what speaks strong this most with the most strength to aesthetic, uh, aesthetic, is what we had discussed with. Um, Painless Parker when he was on it when you, you know he's very well known in the steampunk community at least locally and I think he's been out of state with it as well you know when you he's very interested in what would if you took the aesthetic of steampunk what would that music sound like because most steampunk music now is really just people who mm. dress in the aesthetic who play a certain kind of music they play a role and that's that right but he wants to know if I built instruments in a steam powered world what would those instruments sound like? What would those instruments be? And I think that's a way more... You mean with f- with your present knowledge yes. in a steam-powered world. But but imagine, like, after a certain time period, technology stopped, but a thing is different, allowing this steam-powered world to exist. What would those sounds be? And I think that's a way more fascinating, aesthetic-fed way of thinking. Well, I have no doubt that at the moment we're repeating the exact progression of a previous... Uh, topic of ours, but based on that idea, it always reminded me of that uh, alternate history author that I yes. mentioned to you once, the Harry Turtle Dove, mm-hmm. imagining how different um, how different timelines would have gone. And uh, to me, that's just the same thing. So, so getting back to to your point here, uh, that that's almost what you see in certain films like uh, like Sherlock Holmes, right? Well, of course not. And I, I do mean the the film Sherlock Holmes, right? Uh, at this time, not not the the BBC series it's on, because that's actually meant to be taking place place in the present day. But uh, the the blockbuster Hollywood Sherlock Holmes with, with Robert um, Downey Jr. with Robert Downey Jr. that that seems almost to follow the same kind of that. Like it's it's not instruments, of course, but it's 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 technologies that seem to have sort of a modern touch because the idea is that 
he himself, Sherlock Holmes, is such he a was... genius that he's ahead of his time. Right. But yet he's working with the elements in his time. So everything ends up coming out sort of uh, modernist for the time. When he invented bizarre. the internet. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I th- he did invent the internet. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> in, a, in a matter of speaking. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's... This this is becoming theory craft. Well, I think the the intelligent. Oh, I'm okay with that. I think the intelligent. No, I don't want to say conclusion because there's no conclusion to this. This is all very much opinion and personality fed. Well, but I think I think a big part of this is it's not so much does mu- does or doesn't music affect your other aesthetics in life because the answer is yes and no. It can and it doesn't have to. Well, I do want to talk about other things, because I guess I'm going to be talking about time periods and how that gets me. I, you mentioned things like food. I, I'm curious about that one, because that's a tougher one. So, I mean... Well, if the, you're talking... The theory is... Spanish food. No, that's stupid. That's too obvious on the <laughs> No, but it's an obvious yes. Yes, but that's thing. not what I'm talking about. I, I There's a theory that restaurants serving certain food types playing a certain type of music feeds the aesthetic and i'm not talking about the obvious spanish restaurant playing spanish music yes duh if you want to immerse someone in a spanish environment you play spanish music feed them spanish food of course and that's the great thing about being in america's here is we can kind of pick and choose from anything we want like we go up one street and we're in a different time so i can go to a german restaurant restaurant and i can get bratwurst you know and i feel so german right now but okay. I have a specific cited example of where they try and mix it up. So I find that sushi and mostly Japanese fusion restaurants, they won't just play straight traditional Japanese music. Sometimes they do. Right. But sometimes they play J-pop. Sometimes they play, you know, classical music. Sometimes they play... Like, I find that a lot of them, based on what they're going for, whether they're more artistic, more fun, more party atmosphere they'll twist it a bit whereas the food is still clearly japanese yeah the music more influences the environment they want to create with the people coming that's not necessarily directly connected to the food that's being eaten but that's true i find like the the more uh highbrow uh sushi bars tend to feature much more ancient japanese music kind of stuff that's just been passed through the ages you imagine yourself sitting in a japanese palace or something like that and then of course yeah the modern more kind of street side ones yeah j-pop very well you're talking you're also talking about one of the most aesthetically intriguing foods to begin with yeah well because sushi itself is is uh presented to be edible to your eyes as well as your mouth well yeah they they've uh-huh. it's been said that a lot of the chefs who learn to create sushi the way it looks is just as important as how it tastes yeah because if it doesn't look good how could you possibly think it tastes good well that's also leads to something that's a little bit different but cars a car in order to be powerful has to sound powerful you get in one of these hybrids and you're going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour and you don't feel it. But you go in, you know, an old school, you go in an old school like 69 hatchback Mustang, you're going to feel throaty and it's audio meeting physical. Right. I mean, that's that's where it really gets down to. You get a roar. So you basically that's just plug, power. plug the American muscle car and No, and but I'm saying like preaching, that's, don't demise. Oh god, no, they're gas guzzlers. But 
it, it's, it's, Hi, it's I'm all right with the I agree with you a though vis, a, a, a very very vis, visceral auditory aesthetic aspect no of course and I, I agree with you I mean yeah gas sculptures or not if you if you are willing to pay that price, by all means, go get your uh, your gas guzzler muscle car. But it's car not the same without that a... throaty roar. It of course. never will be the same without that throaty roar. Yeah. Even if they throw it on a tape deck and throw it in my hybrid, I mean, yeah. I need that. I was talking about twenties aesthetic before. If I if I could find one and and maintain it regularly, I would buy a Model T Ford in a heartbeat. Well, then, then you shall be a gentleman chap and have a monocle and a full handlebar uh, Excuse me, Model T Fords were built for the common man. They cost $900 at the time. They were the least pretentious thing on the market. Thank you. Yeah, but nowadays they would probably be the most pretentious thing you could possibly own. I disagree with that. There's, cars from the teens actually tended to be much more for the wealthy. They had little brass trimming and all that fancy, you know, all that jazz. Pre-jazz? No, right there in the midst of, of, oh, of right like, jazz... Yeah. That would be, yes, the birth of jazz. Yes. They created all that well, jazz also, that was, with cars. I, I think bringing it back to music, um, there's actually an artist who I'm hoping to bring on the podcast either as a guest if he's in the States again or at least bring his music on um, that actually takes an aesthetic and bends it into a modern twist. Hmm. So his name is Mr. B. the Gentleman Rhymer. He's from England and he does hip-hop, but with a proper British accent, accent, very, you know, and he takes this aesthetic, this, you know, the well-to-do, proper British gentleman. The guy but, we quote when we go, yes, indeed, yes. But still does hip-hop, yeah, which is a very street-savvy sound and created, obviously, in the streets. And he mixes it together, and it makes for an aesthetic that's very unique. He also plays a banjo lele. It is a fusion of the banjo and, and the ukulele. ukulele. It's yeah, a small electric banjo lele. <laughs> he electrified it. But he but he also <laughs> mixes that with beats and and you know other it's not just the banjo lele. He does layering and mixing and it's just a nice interesting fusion of aesthetics together that makes for a unique and enjoyable sound. Well, see that's probably the more interesting thing. Like the creation of aesthetics. For instance, uh, you know, as an amateur composer, when I'm trying to write something, I don't always like just immersing myself. And I'm never, I'm never fully satisfied with just immersing myself in an existing aesthetic because, as much as I enjoy immersing myself uh, extraneously from actually composing, as much as I enjoy immersion, I, I, I do believe that I, there's a time for rehashing and there's a time for not. At some point, you just have to go original. So at some point, try to try to merge, try to figure out something that you deem to be a new aesthetic, because that's what's really going to drive uh, imagination forward, I think. Especially if what uh, you're saying is true, and that people, um, which I think we've already proven to be true, is that people do take their aesthetics and, and sort of play with them, mix and match. If they're going to be inspired by something new, you, you gotta create new things. You can't just stick with what is. That's, I think, a perfect way to kind of sum up everything we've been rambling on about for the last yes. half hour or so. Try new things. Yes. But also try all the things. Please. Please and do try, try all the things, too. Try all the things. All the things. All the things. Yeah, In fact, versatility is probably the best. At the same time. Well, if you can, yeah. Hibachi, go, go sushi, and burritos, which actually do work well together. I've done that. Coffee and hamburgers, too. 
Really great. Yeah, well, well that's diner. I mean, that's a, yeah, coffee. I mean, an American diner coffee goes with everything. Oh, most like people a don't cheeseburger, a cheeseburger, and a burrito, and sashimi. Walk into a bar. Please like stop. Please nachos, no, stop. nachos, and wine, which I've had twice, and I've it was had awesome. For yeah, okay. I like shrimp. I'm nachos. lactose intolerant, and I don't like wine, so I'm not interested. Oh, so sad. Damn. Anyway. Yeah, I know. I think this is a we're, pity we're, going your way now. I think the tiredness is setting, and why don't we wrap up? Um, but I did, I did enjoy this discussion, and may want to revisit it in the future, maybe if we have Mister Beyond. But why don't we have our spam mail of the week, Steve? Yes, spam, spam. I do not leave a leave a response. However, after looking at through some of the comments here, tragic dead ends, one less progressive. I actually do have two questions for you, you, if it's okay. Is it simply me, or does the, or does it give the impression like some of this responses look as if they've been written by brain dead folks? <laughs> and if you are writing at additional places, I'd like to, to, to follow everything fresh you have to post. Could you list every one of your social networking pages, like your Twitter feed, Facebook page, and LinkedIn profile? By Simpsons, Simpsons tapped out donut pack. See what I love about this is he's. Being self-aware and making fun of things that make no sense, like other spam comments. It's actually a fairly like, common one now that we're getting. But that, what that upsets line. me more is that the spam bot didn't bother to check that we do have a Facebook page and we do have a Twitter link. So yeah, you know. that's yeah, thing. It, should, it, it should have blanket bombed us right there. I did like the fact that it's kind of a callback to the the line from Mark Three where where the rabbit goes, "Don't try this at home, kids." <laughs> yes, they like to stutter. Like, you'd think, you know, that would be, like, the least bit of probbling, probbling, wow, I made up a word there, that that a computer would have. Is stuttering. Like, you'd think they'd for, just copy the word. It's in a free dictionary you can extract. For the fact that computers don't stutter unless they're breaking, that has been a prevalent part of computers' ideas and personifications in mass media for it has I don't know how it, long. Has it now, really? Yeah. Okay, that. we're done. Great. So, um, because I'm not letting this conversation continue. Oh, you don't like you don't like you don't like depth. No, I don't like John's depth. You don't like breath. He's cavernous. Depth and breath. <laughs> I'm cavern. I'm that. Wow. Thank you. Cavernous. I don't think you, John, wants to be cavernous. <laughs> anyway, I'm a deep um, guy. So next week we oh, have um, Steve's pick. Um, so what are we going to be doing next week, Steve? I don't know, All but right. he giggled when he th- when he found this. Well, here's the thing: I never even intended this to exist because this is a band that started out in the 1960s. They were a Brazilian band, and uh, Brazil was kind of a hot place to be back in the 1960s. In fact, it's still a hot place to be. No pun intended. Yeah. Yes, they. Got into psychedelic rock down there, like we did up here. But, of course, it's not just everyday psychedelic rock. It's Brazilian psychedelic rock. And, oh, it's quite psychedelic, at least from the albums that I listened to and and fell in love with. At least in terms of, let's throw out the word again, aesthetic. Because it's just so bizarre. Again, this is a new thing. You may not like it, and frankly, I have no idea what they're doing now, because it seems like there's been several hiatuses, band returned, and I'm sure that's not all the same members, so I have no idea what we're going to get. But the album's name is Full Metal Jack. And that'll be next week. And what's the band? band the band's name is... Oh. <laughs> you forgot Os, that. Os Mutantes. Os Mutantes. Or in Portuguese, The Mutants. Okay. Well, that's... Interesting and stuff. 
I'm still worried the fact that he giggled. Yeah. When he found this album. I don't this, know that I've ever album. heard Steve giggle before. Anyway. Um, it was really evil. As always, thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, we've updated some stuff on the site. New contact info. Please shoot us an email with questions and comments. Um, and, uh, yes, I'm bringing it up again. We will be writing more articles, so stay tuned for that, putting us on the spot. Oh, dear. And this is my idea, too. We don't mind. <laughs> What's yeah. he doing to me? We don't mind. We like being in the spotlight. What, am I, the, what am I doing to me? <laughs> with that, music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. good.